All right, well, we're going to open in a word of prayer. And uh, if you are watching from home, I want to thank you for joining us on our Facebook or our YouTube channels. And we've got some great questions that have already been submitted tonight. And then hopefully you guys will have some more questions uh, that you can ask from the floor. So uh, before I pray, I'll just let you know, if, we, if you do have a question, uh, raise your hand. Steve's going to be my runner tonight, so he has the microphone. Please be sure to ask your question into the microphone, um, just so not only so everyone else can hear it, but so our viewers online can hear it as well, if you could do that. So, all right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have, Lord, to uh, know you more, to, to get to know you better through your word. Father, sometimes questions, uh, unanswered questions can be a stumbling block in our lives where we, we remain confused or maybe we've been taught something that's uh, not true and we just, we go through life believing something that just does not line up with your word. And so, Father, help me tonight in, in whatever way um, I can answer these questions that, that, uh, that may be uh, asked tonight, Lord. Help me to do that according to your word and, and with the, with the, help in the counsel of the Holy Spirit, that it would not be my words tonight, Lord, um, but it would be your word that provides answers that we need. And I know, Father, that uh, we can't know everything, and, uh, but Father, uh, hopefully tonight we'll, we'll, we'll come to know you in a deeper and a more personal way so that we can just love you more and, and have a, a bigger view of who you are. And in that, Lord, we will want to seek you more, serve you more, and live for you more faithfully. And so we just commit our time here tonight to you in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. All right. All right, guys. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to start off with a pre-submitted question because I did get several questions that were emailed to me uh, on the front end. And so question number one tonight comes from Cindy Young. And this is her question. She says, why were the Magi interested in a Jewish king for them to go looking for the Messiah, for Jesus? And would they have been familiar with the Jewish teachings of a Messiah? Okay, so just to kind of set the context, we know Matthew chapter 2 it speaks of these, these Magi from the east. Uh, they're obviously following what we call the Star of Bethlehem. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of interesting discussion about what this star was. I'll, I'll get into that here in just a second. Um, the first thing I want to say, y'all know that there, there weren't necessarily three magi, right? We, we've always associated the magi that there were three wise men that came from these. It doesn't say that. It just says that there were magi who came from these. Where we got tripped up and confused is that they presented three different gifts to the king to the, the baby Jesus, and that's why somewhere along the way it got interpreted that there were three magi. But anyway, that, that's kind of not, neither here nor there. So um, interesting uh, question. Here's, here's kind of the way I would look at that. First of all, um, most interpreters believe that the magi uh, came from either Persia, some part of the Persian Empire, um, or uh, Babylon. You know, the, the Chaldeans are, were, were a particular group of sages that lived in Mesopotamia. The word Mesopotamia is the land between two rivers. And so we're talking about modern-day Iraq, uh, maybe parts of Persia somewhere. We don't know exactly where they came from, but I do believe they probably more than likely were Chaldeans or Persians. 
um, how would they have known this star was a sign of the birth of the Messiah? Well, I think there's a couple of potential answers that, that, that we could look at here. The first thing is that I do think there's something to uh, what, we, what the scriptures call the Maseroth. Has anybody ever heard of the Maseroth? Uh, it's also known as the Zodiac. And what's interesting about the Zodiac is that we all know that there are uni- the, the universal signs of the Zodiac. There are 12 signs of the Zodiac, and these are stars and constellations in the night sky that every ancient civilization and culture they all recognize, and they all had the same signs and symbols for the zodiac. And let me tell you why that's important. When you look up at the night sky and you see Virgo or Leo or Scorpio or Libra, okay, um, those stars in and of themselves and those constellations, they really don't look like the pictures that are associated with them. So, where did, so, so there are pictures and there are backstories that go with these 12 signs of the zodiac, that you would never just come to that conclusion by simply just looking up at the night sky. There had to be a story associated and attached to the zodiac in order for the, all of these ancient uh, civilizations and cultures to know what they are. Uh, and the reason I say that is because these are universal. You can go back as far as you possibly can in ancient civilization, and the zodiac is the same, the same stories, the same signs, the same backstory is connected to that. And so there were some interesting things with ancient cultures in interpreting the stars, interpreting the signs in the heavens. And so I think that, that on one hand, these, these magi, these, these probably Chaldeans or Babylonian sages, uh, they were interpreters of these stars and they were paying attention to the signs in the heavens. And maybe through just their own interpretation, they knew there was a significant event that was taking place around the birth of Jesus. Now, um, we know that in the scriptures in Genesis 1, the Lord says he gave us the sun, moon, and the stars as what? To be signs, to to, to determine the seasons, the appointed signs, and and to uh, basically to be billboards in the sky, the, the, the natural course of the heavens and the sun, moon, and stars and the planetary motions, they were to be given to us as signs. And so there's something... There, this, uh, In Job chapter 38, it says this, Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of, the, of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth? That's that word, the Hebrew word for zodiac. Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? And so that's one possibility that these magi were very wise in their understanding of the zodiac. And because what we have to conclude, because every ancient civilization has the same story for the zodiac, it has a common source, an ancient common source. I happen to believe that pre-flood, Adam and Eve, Enoch, Noah, I think all of those early generations of humans would have known that when you start looking, and I'll tell you what's even more interesting, when you go into the details of the zodiac, Virgo, Leo, Libra, Scorpio, all the different signs and all of the, the backstory that they represent, they really do tell the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They really do. So where did that story come from? Well, I believe God gave it to the first generation, probably Adam and Eve, and that was passed down throughout generations. It probably survived the flood and was you know, taken on through after the Tower of Babel 
to all the different civilizations of the world. And of course, we know now that's been perverted and distorted, and now we have astrology and, and all that kind of... That's a perversion, right? I'm not saying go read your horoscopes. That's not what I'm talking about here. This is a different thing that I'm talking about. But the, the story of the Zodiac does tell the story of the gospel. And it's fascinating. I don't have time to get into it tonight. Uh, D. James Kennedy, did. Uh, he wrote a book, The True Meaning of the Zodiac, if you're interested in that kind of stuff. But here's what I think the real answer is. <laughs> That's a long way around to get to this. Who was in Babylon for the majority of his adult life that we know in the Bible, a, a Hebrew, that was a Jewish man who was in Babylon? Daniel. And Daniel, it says in Daniel 2, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, so Daniel has interpreted a dream for Nebuchadnezzar, and it says, King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, and he paid homage to Daniel, and he commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. He is a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now listen to what Nebuchadnezzar did. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Now, Daniel was in Babylon for a very, very long time, decades. I'm not sure the exact number of years. I want to say it was close to 70 years, if not more, that Daniel... So he lived under the Babylonian Empire, and then he was also a, a, uh, a ruler and a wise man in the Persian, in the Medo-Persian Empire. So him being there as a... Uh, a wise man, in other words, Daniel was a magi. And so he was interpreting scripture and he was writing scripture and he was, he was probably sharing all of his knowledge with all the other ancient uh, magi of his day and those were put in the annals and in the records of the kings and all that kind of stuff. So it, it probably what happened is that these wise men either knew about the records of Daniel or probably had read some of the writings of Daniel and his interpretations and based on that, those interpretations, they were tipped off, in other words, to know that this star, this particular sign in the heaven, was a unique sign that pointed to the birth of the Messiah. Well, you say, well, what ancient scripture would have pointed to this star? I think Numbers 24 gives us a good indication. This is also a pagan, Balaam, who's given a prophecy on behalf of Israel, listen to what he says. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. So, so Balaam is given a prophecy about the Messiah. Listen to what he says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and it will crush the forehead of Moab and break down all of the sons of Sheth. And so perhaps this is part of the prophetic word that Daniel was familiar with, that he shared with the Magi in Babylon, and then they were able to kind of put all these things together through their own interpretation, and that's why they knew that this particular sign pointed to the birth of the Messiah. The other passage, obviously, is Revelation chapter 12, where I saw a sign in heaven. And a woman clothed with the sun with 12 stars on her head. She was about to give birth to a male child. I think all of that is all connected. And again, I'm not going to get into all of that. But um, anyway, that's an interesting question. 
So that has to do concerning the Magi. How did they know about Jesus? How did they know about the star? I think that's probably the best answer I can give. So I'll take a question from the floor now if uh, anybody has one. first time I read the story of Abraham and Isaac and his taking Isaac up for, you know, to sacrifice him, I kind of pictured Isaac as being a baby. But when I read it again and I continued to read on, and two chapters later, Isaac is an adult, I kind of pictured Isaac as an adult or at least an older, much older child. So now I'm thinking, okay, Isaac's sitting there and he realizes that his dad is about to sacrifice him. So I'm picturing in my mind, okay, Isaac has to be at least as strong in his faith as Abraham for him to allow his father to bind him, to sacrifice him to his Lord. And what kind of relationship does he have with his father after this? Because there's no mention of him going back with Abraham to Sarah. So how old is Isaac when he's bound to be sacrificed? It's um, a great question. He was, he was most definitely a, a young man, um, probably in his late teens to early 20s. Um, there's a lot of different um, scholars that have tried to do the exact, you know, backing up and figuring out exactly how old he would have been. But he was definitely not a, a young child. He was definitely not a little boy. He would have been um, probably somewhere between 18 and, and 25 years old. So, and, and the thing that, you know, I think some people struggle a little bit with that story because, number one, why would the God of Abraham ask him to sacrifice his son when we know that child sacrifice, human sacrifice, was an abomination to the Lord, and some people are like, whoa, you know, why, why would he do that? We have, to, we have to back up and look at, this is in Genesis 22, this entire story is, is prophetic typology. The whole purpose of this thing, now it was a legitimate test for Abraham, for God to, to put his faith to the test, uh, and the thing about Abraham is that in the book of Hebrews, you know, first of all, Abraham tells the two servants that are with him, he says, hey, my son and I are going up on the mountain to worship, and we will come back to you. So he knew, he knew that they were both coming back That was because he, he had faith. He knew. And in the book of Hebrews, we understand why Abraham was so confident because Abraham said, even if the Lord had allowed him to take Isaac's life, he said he believed that God would what? Raise him from the dead. And so Abraham's faith was so strong that he's like, you know, I know, I know the Lord would, ne would never otherwise ask me to do something like this, um, but it is all a picture of the father's relationship to the son. He's called my beloved son. Your own, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Well, Abraham had other children. So why did he call Isaac your only son? Because he was the son of promise. He was the son that God had promised Abraham and Sarah. And so he was the only son. He, he put the wood on his back, 
He bound him with the wood. He, he, they marched up the mountain, Mount Moriah, which just so happens to be the same mountain where Jesus was crucified some two, almost 2,000 years later. Okay? So you understand the significance. And then as the Lord stops Abraham from sacrificing his son, he provides the, lamb, the ram in his place, and he says, you see the Lord, he calls him Jehovah Jireh, the Lord has what? Provided. And he says, on this mountain, the Lord will provide. And so that, and, and that whole picture was, a, was, was prophetically prefiguring the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's what that whole story w- was really about. I mean, from, from the, the people involved, the place that it took place in, how it happened, the fact that Isaac had to be obedient... Yeah, he could have, his, his father was old, right? So he could have at any time said, no, I'm not, I'm not doing this. You're crazy. You know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going through with this. He could have run away and gotten away, you know, but he was obedient all the way up until the point of what? Of death. So Isaac is a picture of Jesus. Abraham, a picture of the father. And it's all wrapped up right there in that one story. So yeah, it's a very fascinating story. But he was most definitely a young man at the time of the, that event. Great question. All right. Anybody else? Uh, in John 4, where um, he had been sitting under the plant and the, for, for shade, and then God sent the worm and the plant and he didn't have shade anymore and he was very mad and angry and then he tells you know you're mad and you're angry about this but yet there's 120,000 people that are living in spiritual darkness but then he says not to mention all the animals that kind of threw me a little bit right there I, I didn't know exactly what he meant and I, but he's merciful to everything and that's the only thing that I could figure that out yeah. So just kind of why why insert that? Why did he put the little an, the animals and, right there and the cattle too? Yeah, yeah I, I, that kind of. Um, yeah, that that's interesting. Let's see. It says Jonah four. It says God said to Jonah, "Do you do you do well to be angry for the plant?" And he said, "Yes, I I do well to be angry angry enough to die." And the Lord said, "You pity the plant for which you did not labor." Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Why, why should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, when there are more than 120,000 who do not know their right from their left and also much cattle? So I think he's basically saying, you know, if you feel this strongly about a, a little plant, you know, why would you not have more mercy for, for people, you know, so, souls made in my image? Uh, and then, you know, animals as well, you know, who are, I guess, of, of greater value than this little measly vine that's grown up, uh, you know, around you or to provide you a little bit of shade. So I think it's probably just him emphasizing the fact that Jonah was not in the proper state of mind and that he was, he was hoping the Lord was going to come down and <laughs> kill the Ninevites because the Jews hated, I mean, the Israelites hated the Assyrians because they were such a wicked, you know, people. And so he did not, he knew the Lord was merciful and compassionate and that's why he didn't want to go to begin with. Absolutely. 
Which is a great, a great point because for anybody to want to tell you that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament, you know, just go read the book of Jonah. Of course, I mean, his mercy and compassion and love and grace is all throughout the Old Testament. But this is a great illustration and example. The main reason Jonah didn't want to go was because he knew God was merciful and compassionate and gracious. And he knew that if he went to, to share the message of repentance, that God would have mercy on these wicked people. Um, so, yes, it is the very much the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New. So it's very important we understand that. But that's a, that's a great question. I don't think I've ever really picked up on that before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think he's just making a point that if you feel this strongly about a, a plant, a vine, then you know why wouldn't you feel that way about the people and and the animals, right? <laughs> That's true. All right, I'm going to ask another question uh, that pre-submitted says, uh, where do we find the, the the Old Testament believers have have any concept of the Trinity? Uh, so it's a really good question. Um, so as an Israelite uh, or a Jew and, and you're, you're reading Scripture, you have the Old Testament as, your, as the inspired Word of God. Uh, we know that the Jews are very much um, committed to the fact that the Lord is one. There is one God, right? He is, he is the one true God. He's the most high but as you work through the narrative of the Old Testament, there are so many occasions where there's some, there's some interesting uh, interactions between Yahweh, okay, we're going to call him Yahweh, the Lord, and then at, at times we also see the Lord and the angel of the Lord, okay, and the angel of the Lord is speaking on behalf of the Lord. He's in physical form. The Lord is in heaven uh, they're both speaking, uh, and, and they're speaking to each other, or they're speaking for one another as if it's interchangeable. And so a lot of Jews had to, had to admit the fact that this angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was equal to Yahweh. He was, this had the same power and authority as the Lord Yahweh, but he was di- different than Yahweh because they're, they're distinct from one another. Um, and so I'll give you a couple of examples because this is a very interesting concept. And matter of fact, going back to Abraham and Genesis 22, listen to this. It says, so during that whole episode with Abraham and Isaac, it says the angel of the Lord. So remember, Abraham's about to sacrifice Isaac. It says the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Huh. Well, why wouldn't he say, well, I know that you fear me? He says, I know that you fear God, but this is the angel of the Lord speaks. So he's talking about God now in the third person, but he's a different individual. You see what I'm saying? There's, there's some little ambiguity here. And he says, see, you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So the angel of the Lord is saying that he was the one that told Abraham to sacrifice his son to begin with, but then he's, dis- he's distinguished himself from God. And so right there in that one passage, you're like, 
well, is the angel of the Lord God, or is he talking on behalf of God, or are they both one and the same, or are they two different people? And so you kind of have this, this mystery going on here in the Old Testament that I think is best understood in, in, in this idea of the angel of the Lord. Now, y'all have heard me probably say this before. The angel of the Lord, these were the... Uh, Physical, these were the physical manifestations of Jesus Christ before he was born into the world. So anytime a person would see the angel of the Lord or the Lord in physical form, okay, we know from the New Testament that would have been who? Jesus. Because Jesus is the image. He is the physical form. He's the image of the invisible God. And so every time a believer had an encounter with the angel of the Lord or saw God face to face or you know, saw him in physical form, whether it be in a vision or on earth or whatever it may be, they're having an encounter with God the Son. Um, but I'm not 100% sure Old Testament Israelites would have had a full grasp. Um, I don't have a full grasp of the Trinity, the nature of God, that there's one God who exists in three distinct personalities. But you do see echoes of it in the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple more uh, scriptures. Listen to Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of righteousness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Did y'all catch that? Therefore, God... Well, who's he talking about? Your God has anointed you. There's two gods there, right? The king that's being anointed, he's being anointed by who? By God. But the king is also called what? He's also called God. What's going on here? It's like there's two gods? Huh? You know, I mean, we know there's one God. Again, that's why the Trinity is such an interesting concept. You know, it blows your mind a little bit because we know there's one God who exists in three distinct personalities. And you see that in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord... Sit at my right hand. The Lord is at your right hand, and it will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. Jesus referred to this in his own ministry. You know, he said, well, who's the son of David? Well, he's, well why did the son of David call him Lord? If the, if, the, if the Messiah is the son of David, then why did, why did the Messiah call him Lord? And, you know, they didn't know how to answer the question because there's this duality going on here. You got the Lord and you got the Lord. And he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So again, you've got all this going on. You also see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. I want to bring this to your attention. Uh, let's see in, uh, in, in Isaiah 63, listen to this. It says, in their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. He's talking about the Israelites. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Hmm. So again, the Holy Spirit seems to be a distinct personality from the angel of the Lord. And then we know in Genesis chapter 1, who's hovering over the waters at the beginning of creation? The Spirit of God. And so from the very beginning, the Old Testament, even though it's not 100% clear it builds this case that there's one God, but yeah, he, is, he exists in distinct personalities. And then we know in, once the New Testament comes, God is revealed a little bit better to us. It's that progressive revelation where we begin to understand that there is one God, and, and you would see Jesus say, you know, go baptize in the name of the 
Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And there's many passages in the New Testament that affirm that there is a triune, a triunity among uh, the Godhead. But that's, that's an interesting question for sure. Um, so anyway, that was a good one. All right, any more uh, questions from the floor? Any questions from the floor? We got your microphone coming. The dynamic between Absalom and, 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 and David. I, I, I don't quite really understand that, that true dynamic, being that David was anointed by the Almighty and his son was pure evil for the most part, <laughs> from, from my perspective. How is it that God never truly intervened into, into rectifying that particular situation? That's a great question. Well, the, the root of the problem with Absalom, his father, uh, David comes with the fact that David was a passive father because what happened is David had another son named Amnon. Another son named, one of his other sons was Amnon. Well, Absalom had a sister. I believe her name was Tamar. Okay? Well, what happened was, and this is a very tragic, you know, event in the family, but Amnon lusted after his own half-sister. He conspired to basically take advantage of her he, he violated her, then he hated her, and so he basically ruined her life because she would no longer be an acceptable wife to anyone else. He basically he, he imprisoned her to widowhood, was basically what he did to her. And Absalom was her, her full-blooded brother, and he goes to David and he says, hey, you're going to do something about this, right? Like, this, this, was, this should never be done in Israel. And what did David do? He didn't do anything. You know, he was, he was angry. He was upset. Oh, man, this is bad, bad stuff. But he, he didn't really act the way that he should have as a father and as a king. And because of that, what happened to Absalom? The resentment and the anger and the bitterness began to build in his heart towards his father to the point to where he killed his brother. He killed Amnon, had to flee, and uh, eventually was allowed to come back. You know, David allowed him to come back into Judah but he eventually, that, it seems like that, that bitterness and that anger never was truly resolved. And, and true for reconciliation never was, was reached. And that's why he ended up trying to um, steal the throne from his own father, which then led to his death. You know, so it was a double blow for David. But at the end of the day, what I see is if David had just probably done his job as, as a father and a king to begin with, he would have avoided so much pain uh, in his family. So it wasn't that, you know, you know, sometimes we look at that guy, why would you let that happen? I look at it, David, why did you let that happen? You know, we have to take responsibility for our own, our actions or our lack thereof. Great question. All right, anybody else from the floor? You just got to go. See you guys. Y'all have fun. Huh? You know I do. Go ahead. Oh, we got one in the back. We got one in the back.
this is uh, this is like the first question you had. Do you think that the Star of Bethlehem was an alignment that followed the ecliptic, or do you think it was a supernatural star? You know, let, that's a great question. Let's let's look at it real quick. Let's look at Matthew two. Um, So the question, the question basically was, again, understanding the, the movements of the constellations and the zodiac and these different alignments. You know, back in September of 2017, I believe, many of you may have paid attention, but there was a lot of buzz on the Internet about the sign of the virgin clothed in the sun, the 12 stars around her head, the dragon. Uh, this is all from, from Revelation chapter 12. And it seemed like these signs and constellations all perfectly aligned that were describing what we read in Revelation chapter 12. And of course, you had a lot of people that were like, hey, the rapture is going to happen or the end of the world's coming or this is the fulfillment of Revelation 12. And of course, we know nothing really happened, um, but it, it definitely got some people's attention. So was, was the star of Bethlehem something like that? Or Bryant's question was, or was it maybe something a little bit more supernatural? So let me, let me read... Um, this a little bit, and it says, um, let's see, this is uh, Matthew 2. It says, Matthew 2, 9, after listening to the king, so the Magi go to meet with Herod, he says, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was, Okay? So, you know, a lot of people are like, man, what's going on here? Is this a, is this a comet? Is this uh, an angel? You know, angels are, are called stars in, in, in the scriptures. You know, was this an angel somehow supernaturally leading them to the place of his birth? You know, because it seems to, be, it seems to imply that the star led them to the exact location of the birth of Messiah, which he was born there in Bethlehem, Right? So it's like it, the, the language to me seems to imply, Brian, that maybe there was something supernatural going on there. Because to me, if you're just looking at a, an alignment in the ecliptic or you're looking at something, you know, constellations and there's an alignment or, a, you know, something happening up there, I don't see how you would be able to use that to determine your way to find the birth of, of the Messiah's. Right, yeah, why would it like stay in place? It does, it does seem to have the language that the, the star came to rest over the place where the child was. Um, so I, I would lean more toward, now there could, have, there could have been something else going on in the constellations that initially kind of gave them the sign, but as they got to the, the land of Judah and kind of were seeking the child, maybe there was something else supernatural going on that led them to the, the exact location of his birth. And I, that's probably where I'd have to land on that. That's a good question, though. All right, I got one right here from Teresa Fleece. Uh, so she said, and then this kind of comes from a, a comment I made last time, but she says, what evidence does the Bible provide that Adam and Eve possibly were clothed in light prior to the fall? Um, I'd made a comment that... Um, I believe that when Adam and Eve were in their original form, I believe they were probably clothed in, in light, okay? Because it says that the minute that they sinned, they knew that they were what? They were naked. 
So something changed. You know, because if not, I mean, they had to be naked from creation, right? It's not like, like, like all of a sudden they just looked up and said, oh, whoa, you know, where did this come from? You know, how, I'm, how am I naked now? And I didn't know I was naked before. No, I don't think that's what was happening. I think something changed in their actual physical appearance where they knew that they had been exposed. All right, so I'm going to try to give you my best uh, answer as to why I do believe Adam and Eve in their original form were clothed in light. Number one, Adam was called the son of God. Okay? So that term is a very unique term in scripture. It, it means a direct creation from God. Okay? We're not, in our own human nature, we're not sons of God. You know that, right? We're sons of Adam. We're sons of Adam. Now, through Jesus and faith in him, he gives us the right to be called what? The sons of God, so that we're a new what? Creation in Christ. We're a direct creation by faith. God gives us a new spirit, and we're, you know, we're called sons and daughters of God. But Adam was a direct creation of God, so he was the son of God. So that means he was the perfect and pure representation of the divine image. Well, we know the Bible tells us a little bit about what God looks like. Let me give you some so, again, if Adam and Eve were directly created by God to represent him as the perfect representation of the divine image, listen to what the scriptures say about God. Uh, Psalm 104, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment. You're stretched out the heavens like a tent. So the Lord covers himself with light like a garment. So it maybe it stands to reason that Adam and Eve also were covered with light like a garment. Listen to what it says in 1 Timothy 6. Uh, the sovereign Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, he dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Uh, to him be honor and dominion forever. Amen. All right. So I believe that the Lord dwells in unapproachable light, or he's clothed himself in light. When Moses goes up on the mountain... Uh, 40 days with the Lord, what happened to his face? His face began to glow. It began to shine because he was exposed in close proximity to the glory of the Lord. And so apparently being in the presence of the Lord to that close proximity, does it changes our outer appearance to where Moses' face would shine when he came down off the mountain and we'd have to put a veil over his face uh, so that the people would not see the, the light start to diminish and so we know that there is, some, and we know Adam and Eve were in the direct presence of the Lord in the garden, right? So they walked with God. They were, they were there with him. And so that, that stands to reason possibly that they had clothes of light. We also know that, that angels are beings of light. They're called stars. They're called the sons of God. Um, uh, in Luke 24, at the, the resurrection, it says they went to the tomb. And it says they were perplexed about this. Behold, two men stood by them dazzling in apparel. So they're shining, they're dazzling. So these are angels. Um, and then the Lord tells us that in the resurrection, in Luke chapter 20, he says that for, for in the resurrection, you will neither marry nor be given in marriage, for you cannot die anymore because you will be equal to the angels and will be son, you will be sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. And so apparently the angels have this, this light this garment of light or this, this image of light, this dazzling appearance. We also see it on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, 
Listen to what Mark says. He says, after six days, he took with him Peter, James, and John. He led them up on the high mountain, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, and no one on earth, as no one on earth could bleach them. Pretty interesting. And so the Lord said, hey, this is what it's going to be like in the kingdom. You're going to have these glorified bodies. Um, and so we, when we receive our resurrected bodies... Who will, we, who will we be like? We will be just like Jesus. All right? Um, listen to what John says. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself even as he is Pure, So we will be pure like Jesus. We will be like him, radiant, shining, bright, like the Lord Jesus in his resurrected form. And then the last one, I come from the book of Revelation, talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says, rejoice, for the marriage of the, uh, of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So we know in our resurrected form, in the kingdom of God, we will be shining light, brightly clothed, white light. So that, that's the picture of the resurrection and what we will be in the kingdom. Which tells me that if the kingdom of God is a, a renewal of all things, then we probably were like that at the what? At the very beginning. That's the best answer I got. I can't definitively tell you that Adam and Eve were dressed in, in white light, but I think it is, prop, it is very likely that they were, and that's why when they sinned, they felt exposed because that light source diminished, and they recognized they didn't have a covering, right? So we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ to cover us in order for us to inherit the kingdom. Of God. Interesting question. All right, any more questions from the floor? Huh? Okay. Why does the Bible say that the devil is the angel of light? Satan is an angel of light. Okay. He does masquerade as, as an angel of light. I, I would go to uh, Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 says, it says, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. Uh, another translation. How you have fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. Um, you've been thrown down to the earth. Have you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn? Have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? So Isaiah 14, I believe, is one of the at least two Old Testament passages that describe the rebellion of the, the Satan. Okay, um, And we know in Revelation that he's the ancient serpent. He's called the devil, the deceiver of the whole world. Uh, the dragon. He's got all these different names that, 
But I think Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 is another one that tells us that he um, was called, uh, he was an angel in heaven, he was called a morning star, he was called son of the dawn. Now, in, in your King James Bibles, you're going to read that, and it's going to say Lucifer. Lucifer was the Latin translation for the morning star, okay? So he was, a, he was one of the sons of God, originally a created being. The, uh, Ezekiel 28 says that he was the seal of perfection, of beauty and wisdom. He was covered in all kinds of precious gems and stones. He's called an anointed cherub. So he would, he would have had one of the, the places of highest positions of authority in the throne room of God as a, a covering cherub angel around the throne. You know, when you read uh, like um, Ezekiel and the book of Revelation about these, uh, these living creatures or these cherubim, they're weird creatures, right? They got wings and the face like an ox and, the, and an eagle and a lion and a face like a man. They're flying and all this kind of stuff. But what are they constantly saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So they, they're worshiping the Lord. They're covering his sacred space. They, they would have been very close in proximity to the Lord. I believe that, that the devil, uh, Satan, originally was in that position as one of the, high, if not the highest, of the order of angels. So therefore, that's why he would have been, and, and I still think he still is, in many ways, very much a powerful being, very much a beautiful creature, very much uh, a light-bearing um, entity so that he deceives the whole world because not because he's some ugly, distorted, you know, red guy with horns. And, you know, no, he's a beautiful angel of light. And he does masquerade so he can take the appearance of different things, but he can manifest himself as an angel of light. And so that's, yeah, that, huh? Yeah, well, he's, he is the deceiver of the whole world. And so it's, you know, sin is, sin, he makes sin attractive and appealing, and he makes the thing, the pleasures of this world very, you know, appealing to us. And, and that's why he's such a, a powerful, you know, deceiver. Uh, but I do believe that that's, there's a great case to be made that he was, originally a guardian cherub in the throne room of God and had the form of a beautiful, the most beautiful angelic being perhaps that God ever made. And so uh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, it talks a lot about, about that. It's a good question. All right, any other questions from the floor?
So it's a great question. And for those of you who didn't hear, I didn't know if he was talking loud enough for the video. But basically the question is, knowing that December 25th has always historically been associated with every pagan deity, the sun god, Tammuz, and you've got Nimrod and his birthday, and you've got all these other uh, Jupiter, Saturn, all the ancient pagan gods, Zeus, um, and all of, all of their birthdays were always associated with the winter solstice, right? So you've got the, the shortest day of the year, usually around 21st, 22nd of December, and then after that, the days begin to what? Get longer again, and so they looked at that as a celebration that the god of the sun was, was being resurrected or coming back to life, and so they would have these huge pagan celebrations, and, and that was always happening right there around um, the 25th of December, and the same thing I, actually is Easter. Easter is a, uh, it's a pagan holiday. Uh, there's just no other way around it. We adopted it from the god of Ishtar, who was the fertility goddess of the Canaanites, and the same thing. In the spring, uh, the spring equinox, um, they would have celebrated this fertility goddess and the eggs and the bunny. All that stuff is all pagan. Okay, and so that's kind of, we've adopted that stuff. And I would say the number one reason we still do it is because golden calves die hard in traditions, especially in church traditions. Number one, a lot of churches aren't even aware that these are predominantly pagan holidays. Some churches just say, well, hey, the, the Christian church just took the pagan holiday and, and started to celebrate it in competition with the pagans and, and therefore to, to celebrate the one true God, the real son of God, as opposed to all these false gods. And that was their, their explanation for it. Um, I don't know how much historical evidence there is for that. I think the Catholic Church, honestly, uh, has a, a lot to do with the reasons why we celebrate these um, occasions or these holidays on, on pagan festival holidays. Uh, for one reason, the Catholic Church early on tried to separate itself from the Jews. And so they went through great lengths, for instance, for, for you know, normally we would have celebrated uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection on what Jewish holiday? Passover. The, the early church celebrated, they didn't celebrate Ishtar, they celebrated what? Passover. And then they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread and they celebrated the Feast of Firstfruits knowing that Jesus was resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits, and that is determined by the lunar cycle, and it's a different time of the year. We know Passover's at a different time every year. Well, the, well, the Catholic Church wanted to dis, dis separate itself so much from the Jews that it made sure that they would never celebrate Easter on Passover or on the, during the, the, the week of Passover. And so they did that intentionally to, to draw a distinction and to make a separation between our Jewish roots and the Roman Catholic Church, which honestly, I'm not going to go into details, but the Roman Catholic Church has adopted a tremendous amount of paganism in its history and in its teachings. Um, and so if you start doing a lot of investigation about the Roman Catholic Church, it has adopted a lot of pagan beliefs and practices. And so I think that's the biggest influence, Steve, is that we have a history of generations and generations of tradition that we know how hard it is to break a, a tradition. And, um, you know, a lot of people could even say worshiping on Sunday and things like that. You know, the, the Sabbath, uh, to me, is probably the more appropriate day 
uh, of worship, you know. But I'm not going to get into all that today. I think we worship the God every day, right? I'm not, I'm not here to, to get into all that necessarily, but it is worth looking into. And I think that, that we as believers should give a lot of thought and consideration to those things. And I do believe that, that the birth of Jesus probably more, more than likely fell on the Feast of Trumpets sometime around the fall of the year. Because the Feast of Trumpets, uh, one of the fulfillments of that is the announcement of the birth of the king. And so we know that Jesus was probably born sometime in the fall of the year based on the biblical record. And I think if he fulfilled all the, the, the spring feast in his death, burial, and resurrection, I believe he would have been born probably somewhere on one of the feast days. And the best candidate I've found so far is that it probably was the Feast of Trumpets, which is the seventh month in the Jewish calendar on the first day. Yeah, in more seasonable time. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that's, that's a lot. I mean, you can, you can really get into some interesting things there about, you know, why. But, you know, I, every family, every person's got to be different, and they got to make their own decisions about that, you know. Um, there's things about our, our tr- traditional Christi- uh, Christmas co- customs that I love. I mean, the Christmas music on the radio, and, you know, I mean... It, in and of itself, those things aren't inherently evil, but I think that we need to be aware that we did get these things from pagan tradition, and we need to make sure we're, our conscience is clear if we're going to participate in, in those things. And so uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, very interesting. All right, let me, let me do one more uh, because we got time for just a few more, so I did get I got a couple more that were that were submitted to me. This one uh, I didn't I don't know who this I got an email I don't know who who the person was, but this says is is it possible for a Christian or non Christian to be demon possessed, or is that just for really bad people? Is the question? It says is demon possession if it's possible, then can the demons be cast out? Um, and if it, if they can be cast out, is it dangerous to the person who's praying? To cast out the demons. Okay, so there's kind of a lot going on here. Um, so short answer, number one, a believer in Christ cannot be possessed by a demon or an unclean spirit. Okay, how do I know that? Well, when a believer trusts in Jesus, they are spiritually reborn, and the Holy Spirit comes to what? Indwell the believer, and the Holy Spirit actually is joined, united to our spirit. So the Bible says in Ephesians 4, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So that tells me that when a believer is saved, his spirit is what? Sealed, and that is a seal that will last us until the day of redemption, which of course is the return of Jesus Christ when we get our resurrected bodies. Okay, Uh, 1 Corinthians, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ He has anointed us and he has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So the the Holy Spirit is a deposit, a guarantee that God will carry to completion the work of salvation that he has begun in us. So in other words, it's very simple. If the Holy Spirit occupies us, there's no more room for another spirit. So another spirit cannot occupy our heart or our, our body or mind or whatever. Now... A believer can be influenced 
by um, demonic spirits. A believer can be oppressed. Uh, we can open ourselves up to the activity of demons and unclean spirits by doing different things and participating in different things and joining ourselves to different partners and people and all kind of things. There are dangers in that, but in no way will a believer be possessed completely under the control of a demon or an unclean spirit. Uh, an unbeliever, however, yes, most definitely uh, can be um, vulnerable to demon possession because an unbeliever does not have the what? The Holy Spirit. There's no Holy Spirit to it. So now they're unoccupied. Their, their heart, their mind, their, their, their soul is unoccupied. They're an empty house, so to speak, and therefore leaving themselves vulnerable to demonic oppression or possession. Luke uh, 11. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when a stronger one than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is Jesus speaking. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to the, the house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. What is, what is going on here? So, number one, yes, an unbeliever who is not occupied with the Holy Spirit is open now to demonic possession. Now, can a demon be cast out? Absolutely. Jesus did it in his ministry. The apostles did it. I think that there's a place for demonic exorcism or whatever you want to call it today. We know that the name of Jesus is the authority and that has power and authority over all things, right? So at the name of Jesus, there is power and authority to cast out demons and to um, cast out evil spirits from people. But what this passage clearly says, and this is where the danger comes in. So if a person who's demon-possessed is um, goes through some type of exorcism or whatever, and that demon is cast out of them, okay, in the name of Jesus, who has power over all spirits and has authority over all demons... Um, he says there's a danger in then leaving your house, what? Unoccupied. Because he said, notice, he said, now, if the demon comes back and finds the house swept and clean, okay, but the house isn't what? It isn't occupied. He says he's going to go back and get seven more spirits, and they're going to come in, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So the, the, the danger would be in this when you do, if, if this ever is an encounter that we have, we need to make sure that person understands the seriousness that they need to get what? They need to get saved. They need to trust in Jesus. They need the Holy Spirit to come and to dwell and to, and to live within them, to seal them so that they could never again be um, possessed by any type of, of demon or unclean spirit. So, uh, guys, I'm going to tell you all something just as a side note. This right here is happening more and more everywhere I look. Y'all would be surprised to know how many people I counsel on a weekly basis who are seeing demons, who are oppressed by demons, 
who are seeing activity in their house that they can't explain. Who they would talk to other people and everybody thinks they're what? They're, these are just crazy. They just say, no, nobody believes me. They think I'm crazy. When I, because, see, we in a Western mindset, we've made everything about science. Everything is just about, oh, it's about mental you know, emotional states of people, mental illness, all that kind of stuff. There's always a scientific explanation for everything. Guys, we're living in a day and age now where this kind of activity is going to become more and more frequent, more and more intense, and we got to have an answer for it. And, and, and there's a particular situation right now with, 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 within our church that we are, we're seriously going to have to do something about a situation that's demonic oppression. And so, I mean, it just it happens more than you, you would think, and I think the reason we don't, we're not sensitive to it in the West, in Western civilization, is because we, we don't like to think about the supernatural. We don't like to think about the spiritual. We just try to explain everything in natural terms and scientific terms, right? You can't explain everything naturally, right? And so we need to be very aware of what's going on, um, and we need to be on guard because th this stuff is getting real, okay? It's getting real. Um, I got one more that I, I did receive. So before I do this last one, um, any more, I'd love to take any more questions from the floor. And uh, if we don't have any more from the floor, then I'll do, I'll do this last one and that'll, that'll be it. Last chance. Any more questions? Any questions from the floor? We're good? Okay. All right, last question. Come from my friend Sheila. So she says, uh, having a conversation about the different theories of the rapture. And so th this kind of posed her to, to say, you know, what's going on here? That She was having a conversation with a friend that said that his understanding is that when Jesus returns that we all get new spiritual bodies and we all go to be with Jesus, both good and bad. And that was kind of what, what threw her off a little bit. She's like, you know, is that what really happens to do, number one, spiritual bodies? And then number two, do every, does everybody receive a resurrection when Jesus returns, both good and bad? Okay, so uh, short answer, no. That, that's not what the Bible teaches, but I'm, I'm going to walk us through a few passages in, um, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and then, and then we'll look at Revelation chapter 20 as well uh, to try to get a handle on this thing. Look, th this thing about the rapture, guys, is like, this is like one of the most popular questions. It's one of the most uh, controversial subjects in all of the scripture. And you know what's interesting? That the term rapture doesn't even exist in the Bible. There's nowhere in the Bible you're going to find the word rapture. But you, you, everybody knows about the rapture. It's kind of like Armageddon. You know, everybody, everybody even if you don't have a, 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 any type of knowledge of the Bible, you know what Armageddon is, right? Or you think you know uh, what Armageddon is. And so I'm going to, I'm going to turn us to the, the primary passage of Scripture that I believe, uh, and there are many others, but this is one of the primary passages that describes what we think we understand to be the rapture and that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so let me just read it, and we're going to break it down. And I'll just kind of tell you guys where I stand and, and what I see uh, when I read the scripture. So 
Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. It says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. All right? Uh, first point. Um, there's a guy on Facebook that is adamant that when we die, we go into what's called soul sleep. Um, and if you've ever heard that, it's, it's taught, I think, Seventh-day Adventists teach this particular doctrine. And what they teach is that when we die, we go, we, we, we're like in a comatose, unconscious state where we're sleeping, technically, spiritually sleeping, until Jesus comes, and that's when we're all going to what? Wake up again kind of deal. Uh, number one, the Bible does not teach, in, teach soul sleep. Okay, we, when we die, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So spiritually, when our, our soul is separated, our spirit is separated from our body, our spirit is still conscious and that those who are believers in relationship with God go to be in the presence of the Lord. Um, and so, like Paul said, for me, it's far better for me to die to go be with who? The Lord. He didn't say it's better for me to die so I can go to sleep for a thousand years. No, he said it's better for me to go be with the Lord because if I die, I go be with him, right? To live as Christ, to die as gain. So anyway, just to make that clarity, when the Bible says that we're asleep, guys, it's just a euphemism. It's just the Bible talking about we're what? We're dead. Okay, just simple, right? So we don't want to be uninformed about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Okay? So believers have hope. Unbelievers have no hope. Now listen to what he says. And this is why this passage is so important, because Paul connects the gospel, the, re the death and resurrection of Jesus, with the second coming of Jesus. Listen to what he says. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the, that's the core message of the gospel. We believe that, okay? He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So, so those who are dead, okay, and they were believers, they're with who? They're with Jesus. They're, they're in the presence of the Lord. This passage just says that God's going to bring with Jesus all his people when he comes. All right, listen. He says, for this we declare to you, by a word from the Lord. Now, here's a question. Paul told us that this is a word from who? From the Lord. Paul received revelation directly from Jesus. He tells us that in the book of Galatians. He spent time with Jesus. Jesus so Jesus told Paul about all this. And we also know that this confirms what Jesus told us in his own teaching in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 Luke 20, 21, Mark 13. So this is a word from the Lord himself. Listen to what he says. That we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So in other words, you're not going to miss it. Okay? Those who are dead are not going to miss the coming of the Lord because those who are alive aren't going to go before them. And, and he tells us how, how this all works out, right? All right, verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the cry of a command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Okay, so this is a loud public event. 
You got angels crying, trumpets sounding, the voice of the archangel. I don't know what the voice of an archangel sounds like. I'm sure it's, it gets our attention, right? This is a very visible, a very public event because it says the Lord will what? Come down. He's coming down from heaven, all right? That's just what the text says. And it says, and the dead in Christ will what? Will rise first. So every person who has died in faith, their spirit is with the Lord. He's bringing them back what? With him. And he's going to give them their resurrected bodies. So this is the moment when Jesus comes down and the dead in Christ, their bodies will be resurrected. Okay? This is called the gathering. We'll see that in just a second. So he's starting to gather all his people together, and he's giving us new what? New bodies. Okay? We're, 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 we're tracking so far. So the Lord will come down from heaven with the cry of a command, the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then this is your rapture verse. Then we who are alive and who are left are left what? Until he what? Until he comes. So it's saying there will be some believers who will make it <laughs> to the very end. Now here's the thing, guys. This is going to be a very, very small minority of believers. It's going to be a remnant. Okay? We get so worked up and caught up and wrapped up about this whole rapture thing when in reality most of us are going to be coming <laughs> with Jesus because we're already going to be what? We're going to be dead, probably. The chances are we're either going to die a natural death or we're going to die a martyr's death. But either way, it's going to be very few people who do get to live to see the return of the Lord Jesus. But there will be some. There will be some. And so he's telling us that the dead will be raised first. But right here at the same time, and all this stuff's happening, right? It says that we who are alive, so there may be some who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. With who? with the resurrected saints, those who are receiving their bodies. And it says, they will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay? That is the quote-unquote what? The rapture. All right? So it's basically whoever is left and alive on the day that Jesus comes, when he returns... We will receive new bodies, just like the resurrected saints are going to get their what? New bodies. And we're all going to be gathered together. Now, why do I use that word gather? Because the Bible speaks about the gathering of God's people a lot more than he ever speaks about the rapture. All right? And so I'm going to turn to uh, 2 Thessalonians now. And so let's, let's talk about the elements of timing. Because I think these passages do give us elements of, of timing. Um, it speaks about the resurrection of the dead. So we know the rapture takes place at the same time of the what? The resurrection. All right, now, Jesus tells us when the resurrection takes place. And Paul tells us too. Jesus says that, G he says, I will raise them up on the last day. When does the resurrection take place? On the last day. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection, then all of us who belong to him, and then comes the end. It's the last day. So there are elements of timing that we get from these passages. All right? Now, let's look at 2 uh, Thessalonians. Let me see. 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, listen to this. 
Uh, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. What's, that? What's, the, what's our gathering together? That's the resurrection rapture. The dead are raised and those who are alive are caught up. We're all gathered to him. Okay. Now listen to what he says. He says, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So now he's saying the resurrection, the rapture, the gathering is the day of the Lord. It's all the same day. He's saying, don't get worried that it's already come. You're not going to miss it. And he tells us why. He says, for do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That's who we call the Antichrist. Who opposes and exalts himself in every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So what is Paul telling us here? He's saying the rapture, the resurrection of the dead, the day of the Lord, the coming of Jesus, all of those things happen at the same what? Same time. And they, they're not going to happen until there's going to be this great rebellion. We call it the falling away. Okay, A lot of people are going to abandon the faith. And then who's going to be revealed first? The Antichrist. So believers, what he's telling us here is that we as believers, if we do live to see this day, we should expect to see who? The Antichrist. We should expect to, to know who he is because we're going to be able to tell, wait, man, this guy, he's the son of law. He's the son of destruction. He's putting himself in the temple. He's declaring himself to be God. He's coming against all the Jews and the Christians. He's trying to exercise authority over all. We're going to be able to recognize him. And, and what Paul is telling us that, is that the day of the Lord and the rapture and the resurrection and the coming of Jesus will not take place until these things happen what? First, that's, that's just what, that's what the scripture says. I don't know how else to put it. Now, this is how I know all this is the same. Look at what he says in verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Who's the lawless one again? Antichrist. Listen. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So think about everything we just read. Paul says... That the coming of the Lord will, Jesus will what? Come down from heaven. We've got rap resurrection. We've got the rapture. We've got the archangel. He says the gathering of the saints and the coming of the Lord will not happen until the Antichrist is revealed. And he says, and then when will Jesus kill the Antichrist? At his coming. It's all one and the same event. Okay? Now, one of the confusing things that I think was shared with Sheila was this. Uh, the particular person she was talking to said, when Jesus comes, everybody gets spiritual bodies, good and bad. That's not what the Bible says. We're not getting spiritual bodies. If you die today, you already have a what? Spiritual body. Paul tells us that. But he says we're going to get our what? Physical resurrected bodies. Okay. And in Revelation 20, as I close this out, it, there, there are two resurrections. There are two. Now, we know Jesus is the first fruit. He's, he's unique. He's the first to be raised. But there will be two resurrections. There's the resurrection of the righteous, and then there's the resurrection of what? The wicked, the unrighteous. 
All right, they're two separate events. How do we know that? Listen to what it says in Revelation 20. It says, They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, and they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And so what we see is when Jesus comes, he destroys the Antichrist, he resurrects our bodies, he raptures whoever is still alive, he establishes his kingdom, that's the first resurrection. Then after the thousand years is ended, there's going to be another what? a resurrection of the wicked, and then they have to face God in their resurrected body to be punished and be honestly to be thrown in the lake of fire, which is the second death. So that's kind of the order of events according to what I read in the scripture, but I know I've probably taken up too much of your time. Thank you guys so much uh, for being patient and faithful, and um, I'll close us out in a word of prayer. And then as always, I'll hang out here for a few minutes afterwards if anybody wants to hang out and chat, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and grace and for all these wonderful questions and just for giving us an opportunity to open your word and, uh, Lord, not just so that we could have more knowledge and, and gain, you know, information, but, Lord, so that we could just come to appreciate your word and, and to love you more and want to know you more and want to dig into your word more than ever before so that we could begin to share it with other people, so that we could share truth, share the gospel, and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, Lord, because all these things are, are important, they're relevant, they're real, and, Lord, eternity hangs in the balance. And so for those in our life who need you, Lord, help us to be faithful and help us to love them enough to share the good news of Jesus with them. I pray this now in your precious name. Amen. Thank you, guys. You have a good night.